Wizards of the Coast has a brand new What is D&D page, including a free encounter and pregens that you can download from the latest D&D starter set. I'm going to talk about an adventure that I worked on with Scott Fitzgerald Gray and Jeff Stevens called Stars Over Stormwreck, which is going to be released next week. We are, of course, going to dive deep into the one D&D experts playtest. This is the first playtest that shows us what the classes are going to look like or what the what they're playtesting for the classes for the next iteration of D&D for the for, for one D&D. Uh, we're going to talk about a video that DungeonCraft, Professor Dungeon Master on DungeonCraft did called Why Additions Don't Matter, which I really liked. We're going to talk about a video that Teos Abadia did on the horrid truth of freelance pay in the, in the, in the RPG market. And we're going to cover more questions from the September Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this and get access to... Tips to help you run your D&D game, exclusive adventures, the City of Arches sourcebook, more tips to help you run your D&D games, an exclusive Discord channel, and video previews. You can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. It's a very low price. You can find a link in the show notes below, and it's a great way to help support this show and help the work, help me help support the work that I do. So thank you very much to the patrons of Sly Flourish. So this past week, I don't, I think they've been working on this page for a little bit, but it's really coming together. There is a page called What is D&D that has a bunch of YouTube videos to help players learn how to play D&D. It really is a great way to, when you have somebody that's brand new to D&D, you can point them to this page. It sends them off and off they go. So on the one, on the What is D&D page, they have a How to DM page. You click that. It has all kinds of links for how to DM, but one of the things it has is a sample encounter, the Drowned Sailors. You can click Download Now, and it gives you a PDF of the first encounter from the Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. But it, with art and everything else, it looks very nice. Also gives you a list of potential spells that the characters will use. Not all the spells, but all, but, but use, one's useful enough for this. And has the pre-gens built in for all of the characters. So you could just go print this out and you could go run and get started with a game for free. Really cool resource. I really, I really like it. I'm really glad to see that they're putting it out there. And the material that they're putting out to help people get started with D&D is some of the best I've ever seen them put out. The new D&D starter set has characters go from first to fourth level in Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. I am running Dragons of Stormwreck Isle for one of my groups, and I really, really like it. And one of the things that I thought was a missed opportunity was the way to connect Dragons of Stormwreck Isle with Light of Xeraxis, the adventure that's in the new Spelljammer box set. The Spelljammer box set starts at 5th level. The, the Dragons of Stormwreck Isle ends at fourth level so there's a whole level missing plus there isn't really a good connection that takes you from the island of of, of dragons of stormwreck isle and takes you to a location that fits for light of xeraxis and i can complain about this on my show or i can do something about it so i did something about it i got together with scott fitzgerald gray my editor long my friend my editor longtime companion longtime editor longtime colleague that has worked on these worked on all the return of the lazy all the lazy dungeon master books all of the fantastic books and i got together with jeff stevens jeff stevens is a producer i've talked about many of his products here on the lazy D talk show fantastic producer very experienced dm's guild 
provider. And the three of us got together to build a product that bridges between Dragons of Stormwreck Isle and Light of Xeraxis. And that is Stars Over Stormwreck. Stars Over Stormwreck is a one-level adventure built for fourth-level characters that takes them from the Dragon of Stormwreck Isle to the city of Luskin. And that connects the bridge between stars between those two adventures so that you can get from one to the other and you can build this nice three adventure scenario that takes you all the way from first level to I think it's eighth level for Light of Xeraxis and draw lets you drop in little hints and secrets and clues so that you can tell that you're leading into this greater thing. And I am running this campaign for my group right now. Very, you know, so Jeff Stevens did all of the layout work. Uh, Scott Gray did all of the editing work. All three of us together worked on the story to kind of get everything together. It's set on a, it, most of it is set on a boat that is transferring you from the dragon, from, from Stormwreck Isle over the, all the way to Luskin and the events that you can have on the boat. It offers multiple events that you can do. It's got all kinds of different stuff that can help you have this adventure that lets you level up your characters but it also has a lot of stuff about how to seed in information from light of xeraxis into an early level adventure so even if you change things about even if you're not running dragon of stormwreck isle you can still take things from this adventure to get them from first level with whatever adventure you're using it also we have recommendations for how we have we have recommendations for how to build characters that fit well with the with both adventures. What are the things that can connect them? And there's recommendations about things that aren't really that clear in light of Xeraxis about how to build your characters. And even recommendations on if you want to use the backgrounds and if you want to use the races that are in the the Spelljammer box set, how you can do those and still run the adventures because that's not very clear in the adventure too. So I'm being a little cynical and a little egotistical in saying I think that we I wrote this to help fix some of the problems that I found when I was looking at Light of Xeraxis and the Spelljammer box set. You'll see some other ones in here too. One of the sections, for example, is it talks about if you are using the backgrounds that are in the Astral Adventurer's Guide and those include a feat, what feats can you give other players that are using other backgrounds? So we have this enhancing background section that helps you kind of upgrade the backgrounds that everybody else has to fit the backgrounds that are inside, inside the Spelljammer box set. So in the beginning of it, we talk about how how to seed in, how to kind of change some of the encounters just a little bit, how to add some small things that basically give this one central seed, in this case is literally a dragon egg, that takes you from Dragons of Stormwreck Isle all the way through to Light of Xeraxis and makes that connection. So we talk about where to drop these things in so that you can connect these two adventures together. A big part of it, Elder Runara, who's a main NPC inside Dragon of Stormwreck Isle, how she, the information she gives you that helps lead you to the steps that take you to Light of Light of Xeraxis. And there's a bunch of we, we offer a few different ways that you can do that. So if you don't if you don't like one way that we do it, we have a couple a couple different ones that we have there. So first part of it is about how to connect it to how to connect it to the other one. Then we actually have the adventure itself where you get on a boat and you start traveling across to Luskin. And we have a bunch of NPCs that are on this ship and a bunch of situations that are on this ship. Different ways that you're working for passage as you're going across. Do you actually want to do work or do you just pay your way? And then what are some of the things that happen? And we have five different encounters that can occur while you're going across the sea. You're not intended to run all five. You're really only intended to run two, maybe three. But one interesting way you could do it is actually taking multiple encounters and mashing them together. So for example, we have this thing that you get attacked by uh, sea elf veterans who are riding on giant spiders, these swimming giant spiders that come up on side of the ship. 
And you might say, okay, well, we're going to run that encounter because that's really cool. But then also there are two coffins of dead people that are being transferred across. And it turns out they're not dead. They're vampire spawns who are just on the move. And they decide, hey, we're just going to eat everybody before we show up on the other shore. What if the vampires get loose right after you fought the sea spiders? What if something that the sea spiders did woke the vampires up? You can do this kind of thing. There's a mutant, a potential mutiny. There's another ship that another pirate ship that is coming towards you. But instead of that making the way, the ship explodes because it's hit by one of the meteors. And then you have to rescue the people. What if while you're rescuing the people, that leads into the mutiny? Or what if after you're rescuing the people, that's why the demon, there's a Barlgra that's being kept in the, in the storage. The Barlgra escapes. So you're not really intended to run all five because that would be just crazy. But you can run two or three of them and you can mash them together and kind of combine two encounters to make them really interesting and exciting and unique encounters. And then finally, you arrive in Luskin. You are sent there to go meet with the captain that you meet in the beginning of Light of Zaraxxus, you're to show her this egg, and right when you show her the egg, that's when Light of Zaraxxus begins, and the whole beginning of Light of Zaraxxus kind of leads you to everything else. So that's all kind of covered. It's a really nice bridge adventure. It's meant to be played in a single session, and it takes you from Dragons of Stormic Isle to Light of Zaraxxus, thus giving you this nice, long connection of this fun campaign for these brand new two two adventures we then have a couple of other things that i really wish had been put into these the the bell jammer box set i added an astral sea encounter generator so while you are sailing about in the astral sea i have some tables that are exactly like the tables you might find in the lazy dm's companion only these are specifically designed and written for running your Spelljammer campaign. So uh, there's different kinds of details you can apply, relics, locations, monuments. These are things that you would see. So instead of the encounters of the creatures you would see, it's where you, what you might find out there. Do you find a shattered statue or a crystalline stasis chamber or a massive ori? Do you find a derelict Spelljamming ship or a celestial carnival? All kinds of different things that you can find in there. So that's the Astral Sea Encounter Generator. And then we have a Wild Space Generator. One of the things that the book doesn't do a fantastic job at is giving you example wild spaces. These are sort of solar systems that your characters might explore. So we have like, what is the characteristic of the sun that you have here? What are the different names of the planets or the names of the, the, different, the different planets that exist in this, in this wild space? What are the planet types? And these are very fantastic. So that's like they're spired or they're a huge head or they're made of glass or it's a complete desert planet. So you can build a whole solar system using this table. What are the characteristics of the planet? You know, they're swarming with stuff, writhing, stormy, shadowy, dying. Notable locations. What are some things you might find on this planet? Vast cities, ancient waterways, light and shadow, like cities of light and shadow, planet-sized graveyards. All the kinds of things you need to generate huge solar systems, build entire universes all on one page. So with just these two pages, you can build all kinds of information to help you expand your Spelljammer book. I, I bet you these two pages alone are worth the price. So, hey, Mike. <clears throat> oh, and then we have all the monsters in the back of the book. So any of the books, all the monster stat blocks that are, are covered inside the book are all here in it, as well as maps. The, the, the PDF will include VTT compatible maps. These maps were done by Elven Tower. Excellent maps that you can drop right into your right into your game. Hey, Mike, how do I get this awesome thing that you just talked about? Well, thank you for asking. It is going to be available on the DMs Guild, I think on Tuesday. So by the time you're watching this video a day or two, and I'll talk about it next week as well when it's actually out, check out the DMs Guild. And the easiest way to find out that it's coming out is to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. There is a link to subscribe to the newsletter. I will certainly let everybody in the newsletter know that this adventure is available so you can go and pick it up. It's going to be five bucks on the DMs Guild. 
I'm really excited for it. This is a really fun project to work on with Scott and with Jeff. We're excited to bring it out here. It was a short-term project. We built the whole thing in a month from the time I was like, hey, this is a good idea to the time we had it ready to go is one month. So really, really fun project to work on. This past week, Wizards of the Coast released the D&D Experts playtest for one D&D. And I have thoughts. So a couple of qualifiers about my thoughts. One is I'm not going to dive deep into a lot of the class features. There are lots of people who are going to talk about the class features. I very much recommend listening to Jeremy Crawford talking with Todd Kendrick on the official Wizards of the Coast channel to hear why they were doing what they were doing and what went on. I'd also recommend there's you know a million videos out there where they're going to dive into class features. So I'm not going to talk a lot about class features. I'm going to try to take like a, a higher level view of things, not get into the nitty gritty of specifics, but talk about some of the trends I'm seeing and some of the things that are interesting. I'm also not going to talk about every feat. I think there's some interesting things they have done with feats. And I want to talk about that. But I don't plan on going through like feet by feet and critiquing them. There's two feats in particular I'm going to talk about. But generally speaking, I'm not going to I'm not going to talk about that. And my hope for this talk is to help us all kind of get our head around what's going on with this and what it means. And I have some I have some other pieces of this I'm going to talk to afterwards that kind of help us scope and scale our thoughts, our feelings, our views of what we're looking at when we look at this playtest. I think that that might be more useful than kind of like nitpicking on different things. That said, let's nitpick with some stuff. So one of the things, I'm going to start off with feats. And one of the things that I thought was really weird and interesting, and I've seen this with Wizards of the Coast and the design, the design of Wizards of the Coast, of D&D recently. Every so often, the designers of Wizards of the Coast, when they try something out, they love it and they fall in love with it and they use it everywhere. And the example are half feats. So a half feat is any feat that has like a feat-like power, but also gives you an ability score bump. And usually the ability score bump is one. So instead of taking... A, instead of taking a feat, or now now you would be taking a feat that gives you an ability score bump of plus two, or you would say, I'm going to skip a feat in, in, in 2014 D&D style. I'm going to skip a feat and I'm going to take an ability score bump in general. Now you get a plus one ability score bump and the equivalent of a feat. Well, A, you've just made feats twice as powerful. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't discount this. I don't think a lot of people are like, hey, you know, feats are twice as powerful now because they not only give you a feat, they also give you an ability score bump and it's only plus one. Well, that's not really twice as much because a plus one isn't a full bonus. It's only a half a bonus, except if you get two feats, now it is a full bonus. So it really is twice as good as it was originally. And I'm not sure... I like that. For one, that's power creep. Like, we, we, let's let's be completely direct and honest with this. You already gave a feat at first level, so that's a big power bump. You are now giving half feats, which means that particularly if you monkey around with point by or you use the standard array, it means that you could have an 18 in your primary ability score, which is a plus four bonus, at fourth level and still have a feat. So instead of having to choose either a feat or an ability score bump, you're getting both. That, you know, that that's a power bump. And then there's other things in here, like they are now taking the 20th level character Paragon ability and moving it to 18th level and then giving you an epic boon at 20th. So they're condensing the power down from the top, from 20th level down, and they're increasing the power from above. You're going to get more feats. You're going to get more ability score bumps and feats, and you're, 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 you're getting your higher power stuff earlier. Granted, 18th level is not that big. Like 18th is already, is already crazy. But essentially a half, yeah, so somebody's asking, well, what is a half feat? A half feat means that you are getting both an ability score bump and a feat and the equivalent of a feat. And they did that throughout the entire the entire playtest. Let's let's go to the PDF here and take a look. So if you look at every feat that's in here, other than the boon, the epic boons which don't do it. 
But every feat in here, great weapon master, prerequisite, you know, ability score, you get a strength plus one to a maximum of 20. And you get cleave and you get heavy weapon. Keen mind, you get ability score, you increase your intelligence by one to a maximum 20 and your lore and your quick study. So every, every one of them in here. And, and an example of like where you're like, what are you exactly trying to fix? Is you have Warcaster. Warcaster is one I wanted to pick on. So Warcaster has all of the same abilities that Warcaster used to have. And Warcaster is one of the most popular feats in 5th edition D&D. Warcaster is used all the time because getting the concentration bonus, getting advantage on concentration checks is a huge advantage. And being able to use a reaction to make an opportunity attack with a spell attack if you build your character right can be really powerful. So people love Warcaster and people use it all the time. Warcaster is getting better. That now you intelligence, wisdom, or charisma modifier is increased by one, and you get all the Warcaster stuff. So they, it's not like they looked at Warcaster and said, you know, Warcaster is a little bit weak. Why don't we give it an ability bump and make it a half feat instead of a regular feat? They're just saying, no, we know it's super popular. We're going to make a regular feat anyway. Really what they're doing is increasing ability score modifiers. It means that people are going to be have higher ability score modifiers than they used to. Now, maybe that's cool. And you're like, yeah, that's fine. But then I ask, what about the monsters? The monsters aren't getting more powerful for their challenge rating, at least that we've seen. The intent is to make old monsters compatible with new ones. So if they do make monsters more powerful, that's going to break all of their old monsters. They can change in counter building maybe, and maybe that's what they're going to do. But I still read things. I was reading the starter set, the, the, the Dragons of Stormwreck Isle starter set adventure, and they were talking about Orcus. And the way they describe Orcus in there is Orcus is a god level demon. And I'm like, Orcus gets killed by 14th level characters regularly. So don't tell me Orcus is God level when 14 level characters are kicking his ass. And guess what? He's going to get his ass kicked even more now because characters are going to be higher level. So I'm, I'm not crazy about it. I, I, I don't think it's wrong for players to have to make the choice of either taking a feat or taking an ability score modifier bump. And the other weird thing about it is the, the problem with half feats are you're getting screwed one way or the other. Either you are spending four levels with an odd ability score that isn't giving you any benefit. Like you have a 17. It's the same thing as a 16, only you have the 17. And then, and then suddenly you get a plus one bonus from your feet and now it's an 18 and it's really good. So, but you had to spend four levels sitting around with an odd ability score modifier. That feels like a waste because it's like you could have taken that 17 and turned it into something else and made one of your other things a little bit higher right or you're going to pick a feat and have this plus one and you're like oh, i'm going to apply it but it doesn't help me and it's not going to help me for four more levels so every four levels you're kind of getting screwed and it actually feels like when you get a half feat and you get a plus one bonus to an ability modifier but that ability is already even so you when you get that bonus it really doesn't give you anything it feels like a loss rather than feeling like a gain because you're essentially you feel like half of the feat is wasted so you're either wasting half a feat before you get it or you're wasting half a feat after you get it. And this all gets into why ability scores are so dorked up. Like ability scores in D&D are just dorked up and it's because odd numbers don't matter. Odd ability scores only matter for like multi-classing or for prerequisites for feats. And that's really a throwaway. They don't need to matter that way. It's just like, well, we're going to make an odd ability score mean something, which means only your real nitpicky players who are really into like, oh, I want to be able to multi-class this other thing, which is also was an optional rule. I presume it's still going to be optional. I'm not sure. Feats are no longer optional, clearly. That's the only reason to get an odd ability score. But the odd doesn't do anything for you. Like even like jump, it kind of did something for you, but it's really rare. So that idea that you're sitting on 
that idea that you're sitting on an odd ability modifier for that long, four levels before you get a feat or four levels after you get a feat, feels like loss of version. And it still has the disadvantage of being power creep as well. I wish feats were just separated from ability scores. My, my, I don't like that ability scores and feats are connected at all. I like the idea that there is a feat that gives you an ability score bump, and that's all it does. And it gives you plus two, so it will take you from a 16 to an 18. I don't like that everything turned into a half feat. All right, I get why, and it's because you have odd numbers. Get rid of the odd numbers. Fix it so that you don't have odd numbers and that all ability scores are basically evens. Do something else. I don't know what exactly, but I know that I'm, I'm not crazy about that. So that was something that I got there. They nerfed Great Weapon Master and Sharpshooter. I'm on board with that. The, the plus five minus or minus five plus 10, it was gonzo. Bunch of people are complaining. I, I went and read other people's opinions on this too. And a bunch of people are complaining. Oh, that was what made fighters interesting. Give me a break. If, if, if fighters were boring, you were boring. Warcaster got buffed. I mentioned that. 18th level pinnacle abilities. I mentioned that. Oh boy, the influence action. So let's talk about the influence action. Because, and we're going to get into like the rules glossary. It's really, some of the stuff they have in the rules glossary is really, really interesting. This thing, I, I can tell they kind of snuck it in here. And what I'm not crazy about with it is like, they didn't really talk about it at all. But this is a fundamental change in how D&D plays. And this is really like the whole style of the game. If, if people are like, oh yeah, I really like this. The whole style of the game will shift. And I'm not sure it's a shift for the better. So the idea behind the influence action is that you have this action to influence an NPC. The action is based on the attitude of the NPC, either indifferent, friendly, or hostile. And then you, when you roll to make the check, the, depending on their attitude and the kind of influence you do and the kind of role you make depends on what they do. And an example is if you try to convince, if you influence a friendly NPC and you roll a 20, that creature attempts a significant risk or sacrifice to do as asked. If you do it to a hostile creature, the creature does as asked as, as, as long as no risks or sacrifices are involved. The thing about this is nowhere in this description does it say that the DM makes the choice about how the, how the creature reacts to what's going on. Instead, you are basically giving rules to the player to say this is how the NPC is going to act when you do this certain thing. In the same way of saying when you attack it with your sword, what kind of damage you do to it. The tricky bit here is a player could certainly argue, oh, that's our main villain up there and he's a bad dude. I'm going to convince him to just walk away. It's not a sacrifice to him. Just turn his back. Did you leave? Right? And he's hostile, but I'm going to roll. Oh, look, I rolled a 22. He has to leave because it says right here in the rules. What's interesting about this is it reminds me of Dungeon World moves. Dungeon World has moves like Spout Lore, where you roll and if you succeed, you know something. And that's up to the DM to decide, like, well, what do you know that you didn't know before? And a lot of times the DM's like, I don't know what you were even asking about. How am I supposed to know what that is? So there's these things where it's like, you know, you're basically setting up a situation with an NPC where the DM isn't involved. Well, guess what? Here's a spreadsheet. You can go play D&D. Like, you don't need me anymore, right? If you're going to have an influence action and you're going to say, oh, well, here's a hostile NPC. Oh, I tell him to go away. All right, I guess he goes away. What, what am I there for? What am I doing? How come I don't get to decide how the NPC gets to act? I think that there's lots of gradients in here. There are definitely times where you can influence an NPC, but so much of it is based on the situation. So much of it is based on the relationship between it. You can't just do a DC 10 or a DC 20 and have people fly away. And, and what does that do to encounters? Because a lot of times you could argue that hostile creatures are an encounter. This means you can circumvent almost every encounter in the game with a single DC 20 check. Boy, right? That, that I'm, I'm, I'm not on board with that. I, I do not. I, I think what's interesting is this used to be in the dungeon master's guide. 
It was in the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide. Using this as a as a framework for DMs to run interaction, I'm good with that as a suggestion. But when I'm running interaction scenes, there are gradients in there. There are differences. If you roll a 12 or a 17 or a 22, things are going to change. But there are many times where you are not, no matter what you roll, you're not going to convince a hostile creature to not attack you. You're not going to be able to convince a hostile creature to do what you say. This one doesn't say that. This one is saying it's all set. And if you take the influence action and then also have an exploration action, and the exploration action is another sort of procedural set where this is exactly how it works. Again, what do you need me for? This reminds me a lot of the of the ways that 4th edition worked. I'm going to complain about 4th edition. I know for those of you who loved 4th edition, I apologize ahead of time. Trust me, I was there playing 4th edition for a long time. I loved 4th edition. Many parts of it I loved 4th edition. Some parts I didn't love, and some parts I saw other DMs not love and walk away from the game. One of those was that more control of the game was handed over to the players to do things. An example was marking. When you would have creatures, when you have characters that would mark a monster, that monster had to attack that character, or they would have major detriments. And you could have these weird things where it's like, we can cast this spell on them, mark them, and then make them do this other thing. And what it created was situations where like, most of the battle wasn't under the control of the DM at all. They couldn't decide what their monsters were going to do. And I would turn it around and say, oh, you don't like that? What if my monster casts the influence action on you and your character has to walk away from a battle? How would you like that as a player? Can I choose these interaction, these influence ones? I'll have my NPC influence your character, do stuff. You'd go bananas. Players would go bananas. Losing, oh, you're taking control of my character. This is the worst thing ever. Guess what? You're taking control of the whole rest of the game. So, no, do not like do not do not like and and I plan on on doing it. And when it, whenever I ask a question like that, whenever I look at something like this, I like to flip the flip the side and say, "Oh, stunning strikes fine. Next like, stunning strikes not broken. You have to burn key points." Okay. What if I have a monk NPC who stuns 3 of you and just keeps you chain stunned? How would you guys feel as a player? Oh, that would be terrible. I'd hate it. Well, guess what? That's how I feel. What if you have NPCs casting silvery barbs all the time? Right? How would you feel about that? So if if you wouldn't like it when monsters do it to you, you don't want to have it as a player. That's, you know, I'm being a little bit crass with that, but that's how I feel. But just imagine if NPCs were using the influence action on players, on characters. You'd go bananas. You'd hate the fact that you were forced, your character is forced to do something without a charm, without anything else, just because the monster rolled a DC 20 check. Frameworks are cool. Giving recommendations for how the DM runs things, giving structure, putting that in the DMG. I'm all really good. This is too much, too much and too far. And I know other people are arguing the same thing that I'm. And then I read other people like, oh, I love it. Finally, there's structure. And finally, I can, my, my jerk DM isn't going to have control and constantly telling me what I'm going to do because I now have this thing. Get a better DM. Be a better DM. We can all be better DMs. Work with the players. Like a good, to, in my opinion, a DM that is working there on behalf of the players to tell an interesting story you're just handcuffing him with this nonsense. And if your DM is a jerk and is using this kind of stuff against you, become a, go, go DM your own game, right? Find a, find a, find a, find a better DM. Another complaint. I have good things. I'm going to talk about some things that I really, really love. Why? So they talked about how they're testing out new things. So then why are they not testing out a different critical hit rule? They, they, they reverted to the 2014 critical hit rules, which is great because I didn't like the rules that they had in the last play test, and that's fine. But why not try some other critical hit rules? And the example I'll bring up is a very commonly used critical hit house rule that I've heard, many, many people use this, is max dice plus rolling the dice extra. That means you get really big critical hits, but it ensures that your crit is always going to be higher than the amount of damage you would do otherwise. So a lot of times people, when, they, when you do a critical hit, you look at the total maximum amount of damage you would have done, and you do that and then you roll the dice again. 
why not test that out? Why, why are they not testing out other critical hit styles? Instead of saying, oh, we'll just do the one for 2014. We've tested that for eight years. We know about that critical hit rule. But what about doubling down? I keep going. Nobody wants to listen to Mike Shea. Nobody listens to Mike Shea. But why not do double damage? I love double damage crits. I use double damage crits on monsters. Shh. Whenever my monsters crit, I just do double damage. It makes for really scary monsters. It makes for really big crits. That's cool. I don't care. Doubling the damage, even if you smite, huge. Who doesn't love that? Who doesn't love doing 72 points of damage with a really good critical smite? Do it. Make the game exciting. I have infinite hit points. I can always put more hit points. I can always have more monsters. Don't worry. I don't worry about doing lots of damage. Doubling damage is great. And, it, and doubling damage doesn't ensure that you're going to have more damage than you do normally. But it's a lot. It's a lot. And I'm not, I don't mean double dice. I mean double the whole thing. Roll your attack like normal. Double the amount of damage if you crit. Really simple. Really straightforward. Very easy to do. Math is very easy to do. Makes for nice big crits. I like it. So I don't know why they're not testing out other critical hits because there's lots of different options for critical hits. Why, why are they just saying, we're going to use the old one? You have an opportunity to test a new critical hit rule. Why not try it? I think they removed the one is always a failure and 20 is automatically a success from this play test. I couldn't really tell. I think that's true. I, you know, I, I, I waffled on that one. I was like, oh, I hate this. This is the worst thing ever. And I'm like, ah, you know, it's fine. Like how often does it take place where somebody is rolling a check that is so bad that if they... That 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 even on a one they would succeed. Like then you're they shouldn't even be bothering to roll at that point. Same in the other direction. If the only way you could possibly do is hitting a twenty, you know I don't know. So so I don't I don't I don't you know I I can't tell. And, and honestly, whatever they decide with that is fine with me. Here's another buff, right? Hey, look, characters got more powerful again. Offhand attacking no longer requires a bonus action. So now if you have two light weapons, you can make a normal attack and as part of your attack action, you can make an offhand attack. I listened to Jeremy Crawford talk about that. They did this so that you didn't have a bonus action tax. That essentially, if you decided that you're a two weapon fighter, there's all these other bonus actions you can't do, particularly rangers and stuff like that. Is it cool? Yeah, but let's not pretend it's not a buff and it's gonna have two effects. One is it means characters can do more per turn because now they can attack with their primary hand, they can attack with their offhand and they can do a bonus action before they had to choose if they want to attack with the offhand as a bonus action. I get it that if you like build your character on two weapon fighting, that that meant you were kind of taxed anytime you had another bonus action spell, particularly because you can't use it as a standard and everything like that. I get it. I played a character that was like that. But you're getting, characters generally are going to be able to do more things. You're going to be able to do multiple attacks, offhand attacks, and bonus actions. That's going to make turns longer because it's going to mean characters are doing more in their turn. And it means that they're more powerful. They're going to be able to do more stuff and that is powerful. And you're already buffed. They get feats at first level. And it's really like, boy, they're just dumping more and more power onto characters. And I know it's like, it's subtle. So you don't look at it. Oh, it's not a, Mike, you're not giving like 24 strength to characters at fourth level. But, you know, it's only a half feat. They're only going to put, yeah, but it's still a buff, right? It's still a buff. The, 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 cow, the power is going up. Feats at first level, ability score bonuses that are going up as well as getting feats that used to be full feats and now they're half feats. And now you're getting bonus, you're getting a second attack with a uh, offhand weapon that is no longer a bonus action. You get to do more stuff. These are all buffs. Let's not pretend they're not buffs. And I brought up, as you're buffing characters, what's happened to my poor monsters, right? What, what, what about me? I run these games. I'm the one sitting here. I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. Boy, they better, boy, the new encounter building rules better be good. Boy, they better do something. Give me something to make sure that my monsters can keep up. Orcus should be godlike. You wrote it in your book. Make sure Orcus is godlike. Grr. I love the new exhaustion rules. I really, this is so straightforward and so simple. 
I don't, I kind of don't know what happens with D and D, but I almost am going to put this rule in place and just use it everywhere. Cause the new exhaustion rules are so much better than the old exhaustion rules were that just all it is, is you get, you know, for every level of exhaustion, you have all of your D 20 tests are subtracted by your exhaustion level and your spell save DCs are also subtracted from your, your, your exhaustion level is subtracted from your spell save DCs. It is so straightforward. It is nice. It is solid. It is linear. There's no weirdness, all that. My only little nitpick would be the idea that when you finish a long rest, you only get one level of exhaustion removed. The thing with like a vampire can drain your life and your hit point maximum is reduced. But when you take a long rest, all of your hit points come back from a vampire having drained your life, but exhaustion doesn't. I don't know why your exhaustion, I don't know why exhaustion is worse than every other status in the game that like when you look, so there's a long, if you look at the long rest somewhere in here, is it rest long? When you look at a long rest, they added some things that actually fix some some other some other some other pieces. When you take a long rest, you regain all your hit points, you regain all your hit dice, your hit point maximum is restored. I actually think that's a change because I think you were normally getting half your hit dice back, but nobody did it that way. And ability scores restored. Any if any of your ability scores were reduced, they return to normal. This prevents there was like the intellect devourer could devour your intellect and lower your intelligence, and there was theoretically no way to get it back. I'm not crazy about this part and, and thinking about it with exhaustion because why exhaustion is worse than getting your ability. If an if a intellect devourer sucks parts of your brain out of your head, you get that coming back after a long rest. But if you're tired, like really tired, no, that's going to take you two days of rest. Give me a break, right? Come on. So I, I, you, one of the things I think is there should be ability, there should be monster abilities that drain stuff from you that require like a lesser or greater restoration. There are monsters definitely have that sort of thing in there. This one is like the particular has to override the general, which means the monster specifically has to say that you need to, you, the only way we can restore these hit points is by a, a lesser or greater restoration. I think like the clay golem is like that. And that I don't believe you would restore that, that this restores your restores, restores everything. Like this max HP restored. If your hit point maximum was reduced, it returns to normal. I don't think that supersedes what a clay golem does when it says that you, you need to have you need to have everything else. But I love the thing. The new guidance, boy, we had like people that were angry about this. Player players of mine that I talked to about the new guidance. Oh, I lost it. But boy, I like the new guidance because guidance spamming was so out of hand. So the new guidance says that once you have received the benefit of a guidance, you can't receive the benefit of a guidance again until you've taken a long rest. It's a little weird from a state base because it's like you're not the one casting the spell. Someone else cast it on you. And yet you're the one that has the detriment of, of it. But, but basically it's there to stop guidance spamming because boy, guidance spamming was really a problem. Guidance meant that essentially if you had guidance, every skill check, as long as it was reasonable for you to cast guidance, you're just adding a D4 to every D20 check. And I think this is better that you can't quite do it on the D20 check. I could see this going for a short rest though. I, I, once per short rest, I don't think it's so bad. Once per long rest seems like, seems like it's a little great, but that, that was interesting. Boy, my players got PO'd about that. The new heroic inspiration. I love the new take and I love the new name. You get heroic inspiration when you roll one instead of a 20. That is great. And I like the name. Heroic inspiration separates him from bardic inspiration, which means that, you know, the, the, there's a little bit less name clash going on. I dig that. So it looks like surprise gives you advantage on initiative. I think that's interesting. That surprise, surprise before was a mess. Trying to figure out surprise is a mess. I've wrote, I have whole articles of like one of the highest viewed articles on Sly Flourish is about how to run surprise. So clearly people don't know how to do it. And the idea that surprise is essentially initiative 
that you have advantage on initiative. Hiding. So here's another one where it's it's kind of like you're codifying something. When you take the hide action, you have to make a DC 15. So instead of rolling a hide action, marking what you keep track of, and then matching it against the passive perception of those who would be viewing you, which I thought was pretty elegant. Like, I don't... This is this is where I get into like, what are you trying to fix? What's broken that you're trying to fix? Designers want to design. And it really feels like the designers of Wizards of the Coast are saying, you know what? I, what am I, I'm not going to sit here staring at an empty whiteboard. I'm going to design some stuff. But the stuff that's getting designed, I don't think needed the fix. And I don't think hide... The idea that you would roll your stealth check and it would be against the passive perception of the creatures that would try to see you, that made sense. What's funny about this is this is a big nerf for stealth characters because most monsters do not have a DC 15 passive perception. It's really, really rare for a monster to have that good a passive perception. They almost always have like nines and tens and twelves. So the idea it's a 15. And who are you losing against? You're trying to hide and you're rolling your check and you fail. You, I guess you know you failed right away, but... Well, what was the DC 15 against? It's an arbitrary DC 15. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means in the world. When it was like passives, I understood. I understood that when you're rolling a stealth check, it's against the passive perception of the monster you're rolling it for. That makes sense to me because it's like the monster's looking. But if you're like in the middle of the desert and there isn't a monster for a thousand miles and you hide and you roll a 12 and you didn't hide, what the hell does that mean? Right. Oh, but you rolled a 17. Well, what the hell does that mean? There's nobody around for a thousand miles. I don't understand what a 15 is means. What is that 15? What do you, what the, the DC should be against the circumstance. There's no circumstances. Nobody's looking for you. So I don't understand. I don't understand that. The idea of the search and study actions being together. I think those are, that's kind of cool. We were trying to use this yesterday. The hard part for me is that I, cause I have a playtest group where I'm, I'm running these playtest things with my players. And the idea that you have sort of they, they, that these there are these new actions, the search action. Let's find them here. You have the yeah, you have the search action. When you take the search action, you make a wisdom check to discern something isn't obvious. The search table suggests which skills insight, medicine, perception and survival help you to find what you're searching for. And then you have the study action. And the study action is like arcana, history, investigation, nature, and it's an intelligence check. So it's the difference between searching and studying. And I think I can get my head around that. But it was it was hard for me to figure out and play. There were times when I was recommending the characters because I, I do a lot of like you know, telling instead of I instead of me requiring the players to come up with an idea about what they might look at, I'll say like anybody that wants to make a nature check can look around and look for tracks, just giving them prompts about the kind of things that they want to do. And I don't think I'm like playing the game for them. I got people like you're playing the game for them. Oh, we're all having fun. So I like the idea that they kind of are, are being specific about what these things are. I like that. I found it a little clumsy to do in play. And I'm going to have to do it again to really see, because it might just be me that I'm so used to doing it the other way that it's difficult for me to break away. But it feels like you have this abstract layer because you already have like a situation that's in the world. And then you have ability scores that that situation applies to. And then you have skills that apply to that. And now you have this action that also applies to it. It feels like there's layers of it feels like there's these these abstract layers that are exist between the situation in the world and the mechanics that we use to define it. And I think you I don't think you need an action for that i did it did screw some players because i said like i guess there's the thing in here they say like as a search you know dm might determine that it doesn't take you an action to do it i thought i saw something about that 
but I don't see it in the text here. I thought there was a way that basically a, a, a DM could say like, you don't need to take an action to do this. You can, you can, you know, you could just do this for free. I thought I saw something in here for that, but I can't, I can't find that at the moment. So that's interesting. I'm not, I don't hate it, but I'm, I'm, it was a little, I liked it when I read it. And then I was in play. I was like, this is a little awkward. Cause I feel like I have these multiple layers of abstraction and I'm, I'm calling like, you can do the search action. If you want to investigate this, it's like, ah, does it really need to be an action? Like we're out of combat anyway. I, it, it feels like it's taking the core mechanic and the core mechanic was really straightforward and simple. And I don't think you need any other mechanics that sit on top of it. I think you can have guidelines. I think you can have recommendations for things. I think you could certainly steer it. But the core mechanic is player describes the situation. or The DM describes the situation. The player describes what they want to do. The DM determines if, if failure is meaningful for this. And if so, if, if, if there's a, ch a chance for failure, a chance for success, they determine what ability score makes sense and what applicable skills might, might apply. The player rolls a die, DM determines the result. That's the base of how this thing works. And the minute you start to say, okay, well, now we're going to apply an action to it. So like, it's not just that. Now it, you have to take either the search. Again, we're getting this dungeon world style moves, which, you know, people love the moves from dungeon world. They love or from apocalypse world and stuff like that. I don't think I need them. I think it's a level of abstraction and mechanics that I don't really need. So I'm, I'm not... I don't think I'm really on board on board with it. Apparently the search action isn't new and it's just new to me. So maybe this isn't a big deal. Maybe it's the study action that's really new. And if that's the case, then that's the case. But it feels like I never called for those kinds of actions. I would just go straight to describe the situation. Player decides what they were going to do. If it's something that there were, there's a risk, there's a chance for failure, there's a chance for success. Then we determine what ability score makes sense. They roll a die against a set DC that, that I set based on the circumstances. And then we narrate the results that like, don't lose that core interaction. That, that to me is, is a big thing. Professor Dungeon Master over at Dungeon Craft did a video called why. It wow. Loud. He did a video called why additions don't matter. And I was really excited to see this video. I was really, I was like, huh, that's an interesting idea. And he brings up a really good point that I think those of us who are just like hip deep in this hobby and like our arms are in it and we're just mucking around and we're, I'm running three games a week and I'm doing all this stuff. It's really easy to forget about this. You go, you go to like Reddit and you read and everybody is like, why does Wizards of the Coast hate fighters? You know, all this stuff that if you squint, you can't tell the difference between these RPGs. If you didn't play D&D, and you went into a convention hall and saw people playing, you would have no idea what version of D&D they're playing. A lot of times we get, we get really tied up in the specifics of the rules and stuff like this. But really the, the, the game itself is the game itself. We're rolling dice, we're with our friends, we're telling stories and stuff like that. Obviously, I feel very passionate about certain things. Obviously, lots of people feel very passionate about it. But I think it's always important to kind of look at the forest through the trees and recognize that like, A, there are dozens and dozens of editions of this game for, that both were made by Wizards of the Coast and TSR and made by other third-party publishers. And they're all excellent. And you can take parts from both of them and you can modify parts from both of them. House ruling is okay. House ruling has been done forever. Wizards of the Coast, a, a very good friend. Of mine, I, won't, I won't call him out by name, but a good friend of mine, we were having this conversation about these rules. And he said, when you read some of these rules, do you imagine that the people at Wizards of the Coast actually would use them? 
And you brought up the point, or I brought up the point. It was like, it's that time when Chris Perkins gave Pat Rothfuss a half a hit point for an entire game that he had one half of a hit point. He's not playing by the rules at all. There's no half hit points, but it's hysterical. And if you look at like how Jeremy Crawford is running his Acquisitions Incorporated games, can you imagine one of the players rolling that influence check and that that's how he would, oh, yep, I guess you influenced the character to do something. That's not how they're playing. When we watch them play, that's not how they play. So he brought up that point of like, would they even use their own rules? And the answer is they don't. They house rule all the time. The designers house rule all the time. The people that make the game, Gary Gygax house ruled all the time. So the, 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 this gets back to that idea of like, we don't have to get too worried. It's very good to give our feedback. I gave my opinions here. I'm certainly going to fill out the playtest results. I'm probably going to have strong words about some things in the playtest results. But the reality is it's okay. It's going to be okay because we can always take what we've got. We can always play the edition we like. We can always modify the rules how we want because this game belongs to us. I say this all the time. I get people that poke at me about it. Well, not really because you have to have your players, but DMs are in the position of finding players. It's it's way easier for a DM to find players than it is for players to find DMs. You get to define the kind of game you want to run and you can go and find the kind of players that you want to run your game more so today than ever before. So I really, I just played a Numenera game for a year, right? I played an entirely different game. I've played Pathfinder. I've played 13th Age. I played Shadow of the Demon Lord. I've played Fate. I've played all these other systems that are small systems. None of them are nearly as big as almost any of the editions of D&D and still I can find players to play. I don't know. It's different for me than other people, but definitely I think there's a lot of ability for us to do it. So I really, I like this video a lot. The video that the professor dungeon master did about why additions don't matter. I'm linking it to in the show notes below. And I think it's relevant to our current situation where we're looking at one D and D and, and, and for some people it can feel like the sky is falling. It can feel like things are shattered. So recall that it's all D and D right? Old school essentials. You can just go play. I have dungeons of fate. I have a, a, a two page. Let's take a look at it. You know, I have, I have Dungeons of Fate. Dungeons of Fate is my super stripped down version of D&D. It's four pages long, including everything you need to DM it and everything you need to play. It has a character sheet. It's got class building. You can build characters right at the table during your game. You don't have, building a character is super fast, super easy, really easy to play, really easy to build monsters, uses my favorite parts from a bunch of different systems, but still can feel like D&D. You're still rolling a D20. It works really well. I really, really dig it. And it's mine. This is the one that I just whipped up. I, I, I mean, I've been working on it for a while but it's like a four page thing print two sheets hand one sheet to the player one sheet is the dm you're ready to go so we can do we can do lots of things so i would just say don't get it give your feedback go ahead and be passionate we love this game be passionate give your feedback but the anxiety that we feel and i feel it too i feel a lot of anxiety about this stuff sometimes that anxiety you feel just recall that like wait we're the ones in the driver's seat we get to decide what hits our table we don't have to watch our whole hobby go in a different direction and feel like, oh man, we're totally hosed. We can play whatever we want. My friend Teo Sabadia did a new video. He's doing a whole series of videos about getting into the TTRPG industry. And he has a really fun, really kind of hard video about the hard truths of freelance pay. Teo specifically is focusing on freelance pay for when you're freelancing for another company, when you're doing a word, word rate based work. And he breaks down the idea that even if you're getting a really good word rate, 10 cents a word, 15 cents a word, 20 cents a word, the amount of words you would have to write to make a living is really hard. There's a couple of things that I would point out. I would, if you're, if you're thinking about getting in this industry, if you're thinking about freelancing, definitely take a look at what Teos has to say. There's kind of two points I would, I want to make about what Teos said. One is that 
He's also not, he's, there's another dark truth that he's not bringing up, which is when you're an, if you were actually trying to do it full time as a living and you're sort of an independent entity, you have to pay in the United States anyway, you have to pay both sides of Medicare and both sides of social security. Normally corporations and companies pay for Medicare, half of Medicare and half of social security on their side. So your taxes go way up. The amount of money that you're paying as an individual is higher than you're getting paid if you're working for a commercial company. There's also all these other benefits, which, you know, there's no surprise to anybody. Medical care, really hard to get if you're independent compared to if you're working for a big company. And retirement benefits. There are some good retirement benefit things. If you make enough money at it, there are good things that you could do as an individual person to, to, to have like an IRA. There's things like a SEP IRA. There's like an independent 401k. In the United States, there are other options to do retirement stuff. But medical care is really, really high. And Social Security and Medicare, you have to cover those costs too, which means it's even worse. So even when he brings up like, imagine you were making $100,000 a year. How great is that? The 100000 a year you're making as a freelancer is way less money than the 100000 you'd be making if you work for a commercial company. So it's important to keep that in mind too, that even that much money doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't feel like it feels because when you're an independent creator, it's a lot worse. The other thing I'll bring up is the, to me, if you were to only go this route, and there are definitely people I know who have only gone the route where they freelance for other companies, you're going to sell yourself short because you are only getting paid directly what you're getting. And I'm not saying that there's another way. I'm saying like, if you're in this industry, you should try everything and you should write your own stuff. You should write your own blog, control your own IP and freelance for other companies to help get the word out. And consider that when you freelance for another company, not only are you getting paid for the work you're doing for them, but you're also, that's also a bit of marketing because you're getting your name out there. So when I wrote for MCDM, when I wrote for Cobalt Press, like I, sometimes I only write like one thing, like for Cobalt Press, I'm like, I want one magic item in Vault of Magic. And the reason why is it's really easy for me to write. I get paid for the word rate, but also my name is in the front of the book. And I can say I wrote for Cobalt Press. It doesn't matter that it was a hundred words. I still wrote for Cobalt Press. So that there's a the, the idea I often look at freelancing for other companies as a a form of marketing and exposure as well as getting paid. Don't ever just do it for exposure. You're getting paid, but you think about it differently and then think about your own IP and draw that. And I've seen a lot of creators who like posted a lot to the DMs Guild. They wrote a lot for other publishers. They've done other things. But, you know, and they and they're mixing it up. And sometimes it's hard. Like it's really hard to go from the DMs Guild to Kickstarter. So it's really really tricky stuff. Anyway. My point is, I would definitely check out his videos. Watch all of his videos on this. Tails is an awesome dude. He's been in the, he's been doing freelancing in this industry for a long time. He's got a lot of really good thoughts, and I, I highly recommend it. So that the link to that is in the show notes below. Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month, I post a new thread to the Sly Flourish Patreon where anybody can ask D&D-related questions. I answer all of them on the Patreon. Some of them I answer here on the show, and some of them I actually make articles and videos about. The first one is from Tiny G says, I enjoyed your, your how to make it video and had a question pop into my, into mind. Patreon, Patreon, I'm assuming you didn't start with that. Otherwise, my question is probably moot. When and why did you consider Patreon and what thoughts plans did you have for what do Patreons get for their bucks? Did you already have a workflow for material that Patreon just sideloaded or did you begin creating entirely new material as a consequence of having a Patreon and needed something to deliver as rewards? It's, an, it's kind of interesting story. Again, Sly Flourish Patreon in the show notes below. I don't want to, I'm not going to get too much into it because it's like, it's not about d and doesn't necessarily help you with d and but I want to talk about a few things. So one is I got involved in the Patreon because Patreon's 
said, if you start one now, you'll be grandfathered in at a lower rate. And I was like, well, let me give it a shot. Originally, the Sly Flourish Patreon was just like a tip jar. It's just a way for you to come and drop a couple bucks my way if you enjoyed what I did. But then I was started to make material for it. And I started to make like an event. Let me make an adventure. And I, what I found is it's a really great publishing platform because it means I can write something very quickly, put it into a template, save it as PDF and send it to patrons. I don't feel like I'm just giving it away to everybody. I'm giving it to people who actually care enough about the work that I do to drop a couple bucks my way a month. And I can often take that early stuff and use it and refine it to something else. And this is why one of the reasons why the Patreon is as cheap as it is, is because a lot of the material there becomes other things. I will take the stuff that's there and I will turn it into the Lazy DM's companion. I'll take I'll, I'll take Ozma, or I'll, I'll take uh, City of Arches and probably turn that into a bigger product eventually. And then I'll, I'll have more editing and I'll do more layout and a different everything. But in the meantime, people get to enjoy it. So people are going to be able to enjoy the City of Arches for years before I've turned it into a formal product product but i still have that option so it's a great way for me to test new material to try things out and that's worked really well i don't have a plan i don't have like a, a, a an overall schedule or a thought about how i'm taking the patreon and stuff like that eventually the price is probably going to go up eventually because right now two dollars is pretty cheap and it's a lot of material everybody that's in at two dollars will be able to stay at two dollars but i'm probably going to bump it up to three dollars i don't know when i'll let people know i'll I'll do a month early i'll make sure people recognize that it's going to jump up so you have that opportunity but the reality is like the money that's been coming in from it has been fine lots of people are on the patreon it's a great way to get the the patreon discord server is fantastic i really love talking to people there it's like my favorite hangout so the whole that whole thing with patreon worked really well i really like patreon it works really well they also take a very small cut so so a lot of times when you're publishing something, you only get 70%, but you get a lot more when you publish on Patreon. So that works. It works really well. So I really dig it. But yeah, the reason, one of the reasons why somebody at Sewer Cookie says, I'm surprised your Patreon is so cheap. And one of the reasons it is, is because it's really testing stuff out too. It's not just, a lot of the material that's there is only ever going to be exclusive to Patreon. So if you're on the Patreon, there's definitely a lot of exclusive stuff. But you also, I don't think it's a surprise that I am also trying things out that could turn into other products. So the, I, I'm not going to charge like full product level costs for things that are also going to be a product that you might end up buying as well. You know, I was worried about it. I was worried about like, well, I've been putting out onesie and twosie pages and I'm turning into the Lazy DMs companion. Are the people on Patreon going to be like, wait a minute, I just paid you for a year to make that stuff. And now you're charging me to buy it again. And my argument would be, well, they're different and you still have the old one. You'll always have the old one. You always have the original versions. And so you don't need the new one if you don't want it. But the new one is fully edited, fully laid out, fully art, you know, physical, all that kind of stuff. So there's reasons why. But I was worried that people would think like, wait, I'm paying for the same product twice. So there's also a lot of exclusive stuff that people aren't. So that's anyway, Tiny, I hope that answers my your question about how I operate the Patreon. And again, the reason I left this in here is if you want to join Patreon, you do get a lot of exclusive stuff. You are getting it for a really good rate and you can do so by joining the Patreon below. Balant G says, have you ever had a party that took a long rest in a tiny hut, but some monsters found their hut? How did you or would you describe the monster's reaction? Did they call for backup? Yes, I did. One of my favorite circumstances were when they were using Tiny Hut inside of the Tomb of the Nine Gods in Tomb of Annihilation. And the guy, the there was a caretaker for the tomb who saw them doing this and would play practical jokes on them. One of my favorite practical jokes was that it became really dark. 
So they couldn't see outside. He threw like a darkness around because you can kind of see outside and inside of the tiny hut. So he, he enveloped it in darkness. And then he dumped a thousand crawling claws on it. So he found all these crawling claws and he dumped it on him and just surrounded it. So then as soon as the thing popped, they were just swarmed with crawling claws and they freaked out. So you can do things like that. One of the things, you know, so that's the fun bit is like what practical jokes can the monsters play on people who are inside of a tiny hut? I really like that idea. And and surrounding it with crawling claws is, is one of my favorite ways. You know, sort of like <clears throat> surrounding it and, you know, setting it on fire, right? Like building, putting wood all around it and then setting it on fire, you know, counting down so that, you know, it can, <laughs> it can go. So lots of different, lots of different ways that you can dick with people in tiny huts. Then there's bigger questions like, okay, but for real, what, what do you deal with? Because tiny huts kind of a hard thing to deal with. And one is that you would have groups that will go out of their way to kind of set up traps against people that are in a tiny hut. But also the world is moving on. So if they're in a tiny hut taking a rest in the middle of a dungeon, the whole dungeon is moving forward. And if the dungeon is moving forward, maybe the whole plots that they were trying to stop, like they'll know, like we have to leave this tiny hut. Tiny hut's a one. I'm, I'm curious if they're going to change tiny hut in the future. But that's what I've done with Tiny Hunt. Andy says, what can experienced players do to support a new inexperienced DM? Support, so support them is number one. The things that you can do, there's some things you can do and some things you probably shouldn't do. The things you can do are build your character around their campaign. Build a character that supports the campaign that they're running. Leap on their story ideas. Leap on their lore. Work with your DM to kind of build your character around their campaign so they so that you can you know think think about like being a DM style player of you're supporting the DM's creative work with your character. That's one way to do it. Build your character in connection to the other characters. Help draw the other characters into the story as well. Be a shepherd for the other characters to join into the story so they're not off running in their different directions too. And that they're supporting the that they're supporting it. Yeah, go with the adventure hooks, right? Make when when the hook is there, don't be a schmuck about it. Go ahead and take the hook. Go 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 with the adventure. Really support them on their ideas. Make sure they, you know, you give them positive feedback. Tell them about what you liked. Tell them about what you enjoyed. And the thing I wouldn't do is I would not correct them. I would not give them negative feedback. Only ever and even and really even if they ask you, "Hey, what kind of things could I improve on?" Don't just pull out your laundry list of things. Really be careful about the kind of feedback you're giving. Give them positive feedback about ways that they can go. You don't have to say like, you know, oh, well, that's not how I would have done it, right? Like, you know, that's, that just isn't going to help. It's, it's really easy. It's very easy to give criticism. And it's really hard for criticism to actually benefit the person you're giving it to. So instead, I would really build your character around trying to support what they're trying to do with the campaign and, and helping them out. And and when they add like specific things, rules, questions, you could you could delegate too. You, or you take on some work. Hey, do you want me to handle initiative for you? Hey, do you want me to track damage that are being applied to monsters? You know, is there any other parts that I can kind of take off your plate to help you out? That that can help, right? And you're not doing it for them. You're telling them, like, I'm just, you know, you've got you're you're busy. I can I can help take care of this. Right. Do you want me? I've done that with other when I've played in games. Hey, do you want me to handle initiative? Oh yeah, sure. That'd be fine. So, so things you can do like that, I think are, 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 are helpful. Another Andy, a different Andy, because I mean, we have one question a month says, if you had to choose only three third party products, not including your own to help you as a DM, what would they? My first product is the dread thing. Anomicon by raging Swan. I don't know if it is out yet, but I have a copy and I picked books that are really big. 
because if I only get three, I want a lot of page count. The Dread Thingonomicon has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of random tables for all different kinds of situations across D&D games. It is a massive book. I am definitely going to do a spotlight of this book. I want to make sure that it's actually available for sale to everybody. It wasn't when I originally got it, but I did get a promotional copy from Raging Swan Press for this amazing book. Again, foam book size book, huge huge book. How, how many pages? 480 page book of random tables. So that's my first book that I would say helps me as a DM because that helps me with inspiration. The second would be the Midgard World book. I don't have my, my copy is upstairs because I'm using it upstairs. Another great big book, really big world book, just packed, packed with stuff. Really, really love this. Really love this book. And I could build many, many adventures for a long period of time with just that one book. I think as campaign books go, you said third party. Eberron would be would definitely be one that I'd pick, but that's that's Wizards of the Coast. But Midgard, I think, as a campaign book goes, has so much depth in it that I could run adventures for the rest of my life in that world. I really like it. And then the third, I would say, again, I just went with Wait, and that was the Tolis book by Monty Cook Game. If I ever wanted to run a big city, my whole shelf is going to collapse when I take this off. Another phone book-sized book of, I think this is another 600-page 666 pages covering this massive city that was written by Monty Cook Games, packed with adventures, packed with ideas, packed with NPCs. I think with those three books, I could certainly run D&D games forever. So those three, those, those would be the three books that I would pick. You asked, you asked for my three. And I almost always went by weight because all three of those are huge books. Spencer M says, you've mentioned your DM toolkit before, but I'm curious about it. What exactly is in front of you when you run your game in person? Laptop books, PDFs, etc. And more specifically, if you use your laptop, what pages, tabs do you keep open? One short question. Haha. Ha. Oh, and I think it'd be cool to do a video walkthrough of this stuff. My answer is, I don't know why you're asking me. What's more interesting is what other people, what we're all have in front of us. So I said, instead of me just answering what's about for me, what is in front of everybody? Because I've talked about, I have an article and I'll link it to the show notes below about my DM toolkit that I have. And that's the kind of stuff I have in front of me. But I thought it's more interesting to hear what other people have. And so I, I put out a tweet. I got 230, 240 replies. I did a bunch of natural language processing to kind of summarize the kind of things that people had. What do they have in front of them? Dice, notes, a screen, a laptop, Roll20, a notebook, Discord, adventure, books, minis, Google, D&D Beyond, dice trays, paper, players, cards, references, initiatives, monsters, iPad, books, maps, pens. I'll, I'll, I'll post this in the notes below too. But you know, a lot of interesting things that they had in front of them. But it's all, I think, the pretty, the pretty typical stuff. So you know, answering your question though, on like, what do I have in front of me? I usually have the PDF of the book that I'm running. And so, if, and so I, I have in-person games and I have online games. And my in-person games, I have my DM cheat sheet, uh, my 5e DM cheat sheet. I have my, my Wormwood dice tray, my fancy ass dice. I have whatever books I need. I actually have a bookshelf next to me at my table that has all the books I need. And I use the physical books. I just, I pull out the book. I have a bookmark and I use, I, I use that in there. What else do I have? I think that's pretty much it. Minis and terrain, if I'm using minis and terrain and maps and stuff like that, you know, Typical stuff that people would have. When I'm online, I usually have my Notion notebook open. I often have Albert Rodeo open. I have my Discord window open so that I can talk to my friends and, and chat in there. And I usually have the PDFs, PDF of one or more of the books that I'm running. Or if I have D&D Beyond, I'll have D&D Beyond. So you know, pretty straightforward stuff. But it's interesting to think of what are the kinds of things that we all have in front of us. 
And I think those answers were kind of neat. And I'll link to the tweet thread. So if you want to see what the actual results were, I have the tweet thread of what kind of stuff people had in it. And I will link to that in the show notes below. Because I think it's really interesting to hear what everybody's got in front of them, right? That's that's the joy of the internet is we can learn from everybody. Casey says, how do you stop yourself from running all of the games and all of the campaigns? I want to rush my friends through Waterdeep so that we can run Curse of Strahd and then Wild Beyond the Witchlight. And now that you've made me want to run Empire of the Ghouls, sounds exciting. And now that you mentioned some other non-5e systems or just fully homebrew a campaign. I'm currently running two proper campaigns, but both are going to take at least one to two years to finish. Do you intentionally keep campaigns short in order to experience more? That's a good, yeah, it's easy. And there's a lot. And the answer is you can't run everything. There's lots of stuff I just know I'm not going to run. I'd love to run Tolis. I don't know if I will. I don't have a plan right now to run Tolis, but I'd sure love to because it'd be really cool. But it's okay. I can just imagine one day I will. And that's that. that just imagining I will makes me happy. Uh, I usually run one-year campaigns. I like to run campaigns that take about a year, somewhere between like a 10 to 14 months, depending on how they go. And that means I can run a lot. I also run two different groups. Sometimes I'll run the same campaign for both groups. Sometimes we split up. So this time I decided to split them up. So I have one Empire of the Ghouls group and one Midgar, uh, one Scarlet Citadel group. One did Numenera. The other one did Wild Beyond the Witchlight. So I've been alternating and that lets me play more games. I actually have a third group that is doing my Stars of Xeraxis, the Light of Xeraxis and Dragons of Stormwreck Isle joined together into one campaign. So one thing I would consider doing is thinking about how you can kind of get a campaign to fit into a year. A, a year is really good. If you want to do even shorter, six month campaigns can also work. The, you know, the shorter your campaigns, the more of them you can run. And the more likely you are to finish them. We were talking before about how do you finish campaigns and lots and lots of people never get around to finishing a campaign. If your campaign is four years long, you're a lot less likely to finish it than if it's only six months long. So how do you run shorter campaigns? How do you focus on the meaty, good part of an adventure? I don't think Scarlet Citadel is going to take a full year. I think it's a six month campaign. I don't even know what I'm going to run after it when we're done. I have no idea, but I'm into it. The other one is like, enjoy, you know, love the one you're with. I'm in this campaign now. I'm excited to run it. Stay excited. The minute you start to feel like I'm not excited about it anymore, maybe it's time to wrap things up because maybe your players aren't excited either and it's time to move on to, to something else. But I, I've, I've, so far, I've had a lot of success with running like, you know, 10 to 14 month campaigns, keeping the campaigns short, focused, clear goals, clear understanding of where it's going to go. The players stay because they're interested in see where it's going to go and then we go on. I don't run big, long, expansive campaigns where people go wherever they want and they can try anything because I don't know how those end any other way than they just stop. Matt B says, how do you balance guardrails in a game for new players while still enforcing consequences for rash actions, especially at low levels? I'm running Seller of Death. In the first session, a new player chose to have their first level sorcerer leave the rest of the party and spend several rounds getting to an unexplored area of the map by themselves. When they got there, they were ambushed by monsters and that were laying in wait, which dropped them to zero on the first attack. They were so far away from the rest of the party that not even the tabaxi could get there before the monster, which effectively ate the character's head. I feel bad about the killing the character, especially a new player but the player ignored repeated warnings from everyone else at the table that that's what that what they were doing is dangerous do you have any advice i mean if you gave him warnings you gave him warnings and you i don't know how bad you should feel i would say like well what was their reaction to getting killed and you know and was that a reasonable reaction like yeah yeah you said it was going to be dangerous but i but i really didn't expect to die and then how do you communicate that again session zero kind of stuff can always help i always you know, promote session zero and have that conversation about what it's going to be. I'm going to do a Scarlet Citadel. There are situations that are going to be deadly and need to be careful when you go into them. But then there's also, you don't want your characters to be too 
apprehensive about going into dangerous situations that the game's going to be really boring. So I think communication is a big one. I think like if they get it, instead of having like monsters surprise them and kill them, like give them that idea that they're going to see these big monsters again. We were talking about zone sweepers, huge monsters that are clearly going to kill you, but you get to see them before they see you. So you know not to be there. Like that's a way to handle it. Right. That, that's one way to deal with it. But sometimes they're going to do things and they're going to get killed. The other one is like clarifying, talking to the player, breaking out a character and talking to the player and saying, just so you know, when your character separates themselves from everybody else, it's harder for me to run the game. I might ignore your character for a big piece of the game because I got four other players that want to do stuff and your character could probably might, might very well die. I would really recommend your character. You find a reason for your character to stay with everybody else. And then you can go back into character, but, but talk to the player. Don't talk to the character. A lot of times the players are so into their characters. They cannot separate their feelings from their character's feelings. And they're driven by the character. And you have to break them away from that and say, let's talk about this game for a minute. Let's, we're not talking about your character and your backstory. We're not talking about your drive and motivations. We're talking about how this game plays. And here's how this game plays, especially for a new player. Enoch says, I have a player. How many? question i think we still have a bunch of questions left well well we'll see how far we go <laughs> enoch says i have a player who's an excellent at role playing what if he wants to a non-charisma character how can he ever play a fighter which is which is let's see how can he ever play a fighter when he's so good at leading these social moments so the idea is like what do you do when your character your player is really good at role playing but the character is not and what i do is if the if the player is really good at role playing a lot of times you don't even have to make a role a lot of times like their description is enough. You can also offer them advantage if they make a really compelling argument and there is an opportunity for failure. If you give them advantage, that's the equivalent of a plus five bonus. But a lot of times like their the charisma of the player describing what their character does, that might be enough for them to get through a situation. And otherwise you can offer a general a general bonus. And it can also be something you could talk about with the with the player and say, like, I know you're really good at this, but your character might not be. So it's one of the rare circumstances where a character is worse at something than the players are. Usually the characters are better at things than the players are. But that could be, you know, that could be different. So I would generally offer them advantage when when it makes sense. Talk to them and see if it's a problem. It might not be. And then let them let them talk their way out of situations that don't necessarily need dice a lot of time. And I think that that can work. Steven says, I feel like a South Park underpants gnome when it comes to D&D books. Step one, buy the book. Step two, something. Step three, profit. I have all these books and I'm only one, I'm, I'm 100% underutilizing them. I got any tips for proactively using books instead of just becoming a collector? Is it just the obvious? And should I just pick a book and read them? I am surrounded by books that I haven't read. My hard drive is filled with hundreds of PDFs that I've barely glanced at. And I'm perfectly content with this because I, what I try to do, I have sort of these steps that I, that I'll, that I'll offer. And one step is, skim skim read them just give them give yourself an opportunity to skim read it whenever i buy a new product i leave it in front of me i don't put it on a shelf i don't stick it in a file folder i put it on my desktop on my on my on my computer or i physically have it on my desktop and i'll at least spend five or ten minutes skimming it i'll let the art influence lee I'll, I'll get an idea of the structure of the book i'll see if there's anything that leaps right out at me as something that's really cool i get an idea for it that's that's really one of them then Two is like, I'll read it. And again, it's not the most in-depth read, but it's like, I'll read it enough to kind of skim to the parts that I like, you know, dive in, you know, dive into one part, dive into another part. Maybe you're not reading the whole thing cover to cover. I'm not reading Tolis cover to cover, 700 page book, but I'll dive in and I'll read pieces that really interest me. 
then I'll pilfer from them. I'll take encounters. I'll take artwork. I'll take NPCs. I'll take locations. I'll, I'll take general themes and ideas and I'll pilfer them and use them in my game or use them in other campaign games however I want. I'm doing this a ton with Cobalt Press products right now. I never read 12 Peculiar Towers, but now I am because it's like, oh, now I have an opportunity to drop these towers in my game. I'm using Demon Cults and Secret Societies all the time because I love me some cults. So I use, I use that. So pilfer from them. Use, then use the bigger pieces. Do you find that you can break it up and use like a major location or a major encounter or a major dungeon? And then finally, you can use them as a hub for other products. This is what I'm doing with, I did it with Numenera. I do it with Cobalt Press that when I'm running a particular campaign, I will sort of stack a bunch of different books together that all support that campaign. So all my Cobalt Press books I'm going to use when I'm doing Scarlet Citadel and Empire of the Ghouls. All of my Numenera books I used when I was running my Numenera campaign. That was the opportunity for me to bring in all of these other books. So Stephen, that, that's kind of how I do it, but I would not feel bad and I would start skim it, read the sections you dig, maybe read some more sections, pilfer stuff to use in your game, use the bigger pieces in your game. And then finally, if you really like that, use that as a hub for the other stuff that you've got. Knights of Roleplay Podcast says, I've been looking at building a lazy campaign in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. Some of the example campaign hooks could be interpreted as telling the players what to do rather than giving them agency to do things on their own. A lot of cam example campaign truths seem like the things that players wouldn't know, things they could have fully discovered during the campaign. Do you think that players might be losing out on player agency and or the thrill of discovery by giving them so much information before the campaign starts? It seems like you do, but I don't. And my, my feeling is that it's more important to give players a clear view of where things are going than it is to give them the mystery of understanding the bigger plot. And that's because they'll, I think player, we are playing a game from session to session. And if they don't know where they are going, they're just going to wander about. And I've seen campaigns where the main plot wasn't super clear, like Storm King's Thunder. And there was a lot of like, I don't know what we're doing. Like we're involved in stuff and it's fun, but I don't know what we're doing. So I don't think that that's the case. I think it is a style. I think it's a, it's a, I will, I will definitely say this is one approach of many. And if you're running a, a West Marches style game, or you're running a very open RPG, you might not want to use this style and that can work for other people. But I know that I, I tend to run focused games where I want it to be clear what the drive and direction is. I'm not giving away all the secrets, but I don't think you should be surprised if, hey, we're playing Curse of Strahd and guess what? Your goal is to kill Strahd or we're playing Rise of Tiamat and guess what? Your goal is to make sure Tiamat doesn't rise. That I, I, you know, I think there's so much stuff. You're not telling them how to do things. You're telling them what the direction of the campaign is. And by that, you could say, are you telling them what to do? Maybe a little, but the idea is you've had an agreement with them that this is what they all want to do. They, their sessions, even before session zero, you talk about, hey, here's this adventure and here's what do you guys think? And they're like, yeah, delving into a dungeon is cool. Well, I'm not telling them to delve into the dungeon. They agreed. So, so I definitely feel like, I definitely feel like that is, is an approach. My friends, we are going to end the show there. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me today. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you like this show and you want to help me out, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter where you get announcements of upcoming products. You get a free adventure generator PDF. You get a weekly D&D article sent directly to your inbox. It is a fantastic way to stay connected to the whole, all the work that I do in Sly Flourish. You can join the Patreon. I've talked a lot about the Patreon, but it's really good. It's a really good value. 
you. You get access to all kinds of exclusive material, adventures. You get access to the Discord channel. You get all kinds of awesome stuff. And you get to help me put on shows like this. You can pick up Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DMs Workbook, or the Lazy DMs Companion in beautiful offset printing. You can find the link to the Sly Flourish bookstore in the show notes below. And finally, you can let your friends know what that, that you like what you are seeing. You can send this video around. You can like it. You can subscribe to the channel. Just let people know that you like the work that I do. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.